Sound design. If it doesn't sound good, EQ it till it does, you know? Sound design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to Sound Design Live, the show to help you build your career as a sound engineer in the home of the world's first online career coaching program optimized for audio professionals. I'm Nathan Lively, and today I'm joined by front of house sound engineer Scott Adamson, who has toured with some of my favorite bands, including Passion Fit, Heim, Matt and Kim, St. Vincent, and Sleater Kenny. So, Scott, welcome to Sound Design Live. Hi, thanks for having me, Nathan. You're welcome. So, everyone likes to uh, pick their own music at their wedding and things like that. What is the music that you chose either for uh, the song that you would walk into or your first dance? What was that song? Uh, we didn't do any of that. Oh we God. literally did a 30-second ceremony in a park without a license. A friend of ours did the officiating. It was very bare bones and quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but if I would have been able to choose a song, I, I Yeah, don't what know. would you have chosen? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it would have been a Prince song to make my wife happy. You know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ask everyone who comes on the podcast is how did you get your first job in audio like your first paying gig like many people who like who do audio and get into music production stuff it all came from playing in bands you know in, in high school and like you know when i had when i had bands going and i was playing drums and trying to record the bands or just trying to start doing shows i just kind of like fell into you know fell in love with all the microphones and <laughs> cool audio gear and, uh, you know, that's kind of how I got into it. And I, I was really interested in recording more first. I think I was 18 when I got my first live sound job. I got a job at a bar. I, I probably like, even really shouldn't have been in there. I think uh -huh. it was technically illegal. Sure. But, uh, but I, was going to, I was going to shows and um, interested in hanging out with musicians and hanging out with other bands and um, just generally being involved. And that's just naturally led to me saying, oh, I know how that audio gear works. I'm going to try to do the sound at this club. So how did you get that job? Just ask the guy, you know, walk up to the sound guy and say, hey, I want to do this. <laughs> why, I... were you why were you not born with any amount of shame or fear? <laughs> um, I am really shy, honestly. And it oh, yeah? took a lot. It took, it was hard to do that. I wish I had been you more You must have confident. really wanted it. I wanted it. Okay. Um, and... I had a couple beers and I walked up to the guy and said, Hey, can I, can I get, can I get involved? And then after that, it was just really easy. He just said, yes, of course. Cause a lot of sound engineers want to share their information with people that are interested. And, um, some people are defensive. It could have gone either way, but, mm -hmm. he, uh, luckily John, who was working that day, who owned the PA system, he was very nice and got me right in. And I was working a couple days later. Wow, that's amazing. And what were some of your first gigs there? I, I'm assuming it was like bar bands or, or what was it, DJs? Tons of bar bands. Okay. Um, not really DJs, at the, not too many DJs at the time. It was This was in the 90s, so um, a lot of rock bands. Um, 
but mostly it was, you know, it was, it was in Iowa City, Iowa, where I went to college. So it's a lot of college bands and uh, a lot of young people kind of like finding their own footing, you know, trying to get involved with music and, and see what they can do. So what was the name of the bar? Gabe's Oasis. Okay. Is it still there? And is, are they still doing shows? And is there still people working as sound engineers there? Absolutely. Uh, they, they changed the name briefly for a few years to the Picador, but I think it's back to Gabe's now. But it's been a music venue since the 70s, honestly. And, um, you know, I I was actually getting fitted for custom-molded earplugs at one point at Sensophonics in Chicago, which is kind of a famous audiologist. Huh? Makes, they make fantastic earplugs. And, uh, yeah, the, the, main, <laughs> the main audiologist there, the founder, he... He was telling me about how he went to shows at Gabe's Oasis back in the seventies. So that's funny. It's a kind of a classic Iowa venue. What do you think is one of the best decisions you made to get more of the work that you really love? I think the hardest thing to do was just stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was frustrated at many points in my career, feeling like it was going to be hard to get the next the next gig, the better gig, the bigger shows. It, it was hard to see a path forward a lot of times. Right. And I very, I very quickly, easily could have just given up, but you know, I stuck with it and just kept being in the industry more than anything. I, what I feel has helped me. And I feel like the, the really good decision was is to like focus on just being nice to people. And, oh, wow. and I think, you know, mixing is important and the skills are important and you, you develop those as you go along. But, just sticking with it and just trying to be nice to people on the job, just that that really made all the difference to me, I, I believe. Have you ever thought about why you stuck with it? Was there was you was that conscious and you were choosing that and you're saying, you know what, I'm not sure how this is gonna work out, but I'm gonna stick with it and see this through? Or or was it just sort of happenstance? Any idea why that worked out that way? Well, I think it was just an a real interest in doing the work. I, I like it. You know, it's, it's fun to mix shows. It's fun to be around music. And honestly, it's fun to work with musicians. I, it's kind of why I feel like a lot of people get involved in live music. You just, if you're the type of person that likes it, you know, you, you get to work with other people that like it. Sure. So even if you didn't have like a clear path forward, you just saw like, this is fun doing this. Um, I don't see anything else as fun. I'm going to keep going with this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I just, I think it's a good job, honestly. And, um, and it's, it's something that's unique and I certainly love the travel. Um, so all those factors really just kind of kept me going. And once in a while you kind of, you know, being in the right place at the right time, get good tour offers, get better job offers. And, you know, then, Things, things happen, you know, it, mm-hmm. but it takes sticking with it. And, you know, like I said, just kind of putting a smile on your face and being being nice to people around you. You just seem like naturally a nice person to me. D- did you see some other people doing it wrong and not being nice people? And you thought, you know what, that person being a mean person is making it so that they hate their job and they're not going to get more work. So I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Or is it just that now looking back, you realize, oh, it was good that I did that. Unfortunately, there's a classic picture of the grumpy sound engineer. Oh, sure. You know? At the end of the day, it's it's a job. And, you know, if you take it and approach it in a way that's 
you see it as a good job and uh, can appreciate the benefits of it, the cool things about it, then you're just going to go further in your career. You know, the people that are actually working with you on the show are going to be more concerned about how their day is going than if you have that perfect EQ on the snare drum, you know? So it, it really, it's a, it's a, it's a job where you are working by yourself, but you do have to work as part of a team. What would your advice be to me if I kind of wanted to be the next Scott Adamson and pursue a career touring as a front of house concert sound mixer? Uh, what would be the first steps, I guess, if you had to start all over again? Like imagine maybe you're moving to a new country and you're not going to know anyone there. And so you have to start all over again or um, new planet. It is all about making connections, you know, and I think that's true with any industry, but it's particularly true with live music. There's no really official place to find jobs or kind of the, the network is somewhat nebulous at times of the live music industry. So I think the advice is you, Find the part of it that you want to work in. You find the music that you like. Figure out who the bands are that you would want to work for if you're doing concerts, music. Mm -hmm. You want to find something that you're going to enjoy doing. So I, I think, you know, I, I know people that work in country music that maybe don't necessarily like it, you know. So sure. it's, um, once you kind of get into one genre of music, you're going to kind of tend to meet those people and get asked to do more of those type of bands. So I think it's, it's a matter of finding, finding the stuff that you like and just going to those shows and talking to people. And once you have, you know, if you have a basic set of audio skills, then you can jump into, you know, like I said, it's, it's a personable job. You can jump into the, you can jump into a show and figure it, you know, figure it out as you go along. You know, there's always going to be some learning on the job. Sure. But I guess more importantly, you're saying is that I actually go and get involved and I talk to those people and I'm around that community so that then I'm also exposed to, uh, I guess, the right connections. You were talking about making connections. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah, okay. it, it, I think that's right. And, you know, as you're talking to people, I think you, you present yourself as, you know, the job as a front of house mixer, if that's what you want to do, or a lighting and lighting director or uh, whatever job you're kind of interested in. You, you go and you speak as someone that wants, you know, you present yourself as someone who is doing that job or wants to do that job, and you start to talk to people. And as people have needs and you're, you know, if you're talking to someone like a tour manager or a, you know, a musician who knows of a need for an audio engineer and you're, and you're speaking about it, then there's your chance to get hired. It's, you know, like I said, there's no real official spot to be posting resumes or anything like that in this industry. So it, it is about going and putting your, putting your feet in, you know, on, on the ground and uh, talking to people at, at shows. Scott, you also mentioned um, something like once you get some audio skills. So let's talk about that more because I know you've been doing some education recently. Um, I know you got your audio education from somewhere. I got my audio education from somewhere. Tell me about the things that you're now offering to help people get started. Uh, may I ask, where did you get your audio education? I went to school. Yeah, I started out in um, recording and actually went to City College of New York. And they have a program in the music school there called the Sonic Arts Center. So I started out in recording and then went out into the world, immediately could not find a job in recording, and then basically learned all the everything I know about live sound on the job, which I, I think um, happens to a lot of people. 
Yeah, well, because there's really no other way to do it. I mean, there there are there are some programs at Full Sail or SAE, but yes, like like myself and you, like most people, just learn on the job because that's kind of the only way, the only option. No matter how much education you have from any source, there's always going to be a lot of on-the-job training because there's so much specific information you need about a particular space, venue, type of show, the people that you're working with there, and the equipment there. There's lots of different kinds of equipment to know. So what happens to a lot of people is that, you know, they, they go to school and they study on a thing for a while, and then they get onto the job market and discover that, you know, those tools that they had at school aren't exactly the ones that they have uh, at this place that they want to work at. And so there's there's always, I think, some level of on-the-job training. Absolutely. There's no question about that. It's impossible to learn how to do this live sound without on-the-job training. I think it's it's impossible to teach it 100% in a classroom. But it's a very, it's a, we're dealing with technical systems here. There is a very, very specific set of methods and techniques. I can tell you I don't have money, but what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a very long career. That you need to make the, make an audio system work, you know, for concerts. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm teaching with the production academy. The course I'm offering this year is a the essential live sound training, you know, all the all the stuff that you would need to get a, get a concert system up and going and get a mix going. I think people should check it out just because it's different than other stuff that I've read. Not necessarily in the content, but the way you approach it is very easy to read. Um, and you take it into small enough chunks that I can get the idea and not feel overwhelmed. So I really appreciate that about the the stuff you're making. Well, I'm, I'm glad it came across that way. And honestly, it was, you know, like everything on my website is on version 20 or 30 at this point. You know, it took a long time to get, get the information down into that correct way, into a bite-sized pieces, into a form that is easily digestible. Because technical stuff is kind of difficult to teach, you know, it's, and mm-hmm. a lot of the concepts in sound are very abstract. So Yeah, you can't see it. Yeah, exactly. And there's no definitive resource for a lot of this stuff. So explaining stuff in a way that makes sense and is accurate, but doesn't step on uh, individual uh, methods. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if that comes across correctly, but... Sure, I know what you mean. Like, the, the this is the bedrock that we all stand on. These are the foundational elements um, that we all use every day. You know, it's, it's, it's something that honestly has been a problem with, with a lot of students that come out of these kind of schools like Full Sail or whatever, you know, they, those are recording schools, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, live sound is just so completely different than recording. Yeah. And the methods are different. And the way, even the way you use EQ is different. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of real world methodology, how you pin a stage, how you wire a stage, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you do, you do learn on the job and they don't teach at school, but it's still very easily explained in a set of videos, which is why I wanted to create this kind of essential training. There's not a lot of this available, and this is the kind of training that you wish you had um, when you were starting out. And I think the word that I really liked that you said was having an entry point, like a place to start, a place to go. And I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I, you know, and I think that's just kind of what I see so often with, with young people or anybody, even old people who want to 
people that want to get into it and just like, how, how do I, where do I go? How do I, how do I learn this? Mm-hmm. And you can go online and search around and stuff. There's really not, you know, there's, it's hard to find anything yeah. uh, solid and reliable. You know, even going through YouTube or whatever, it's, it's really, it's a little dicey. So I wanted to offer, you know, at least some kind of, you know, experience. It's really nice to see fresh information, new things. Um, and so I definitely recommend that everyone checks out theproductionacademy.com. Thank you, Nathan. Scott, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people making who are new to front of house mixing? I'm not sure where you might see this at this point, but I'm sure you get a lot of questions from people and you work with other engineers in the field who maybe uh, mix the opening band or you go to a festival or something. So what are you seeing people do out there who are maybe new to front of house mixing and some mistakes they're making? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see it a lot because, you know, uh, honestly, festivals are one of the biggest ways that a lot of the bands, the pop bands that I work for, especially like Heim, which I was doing a lot last year and, you know, just, they make their money doing festivals. So I, I see a lot of, a lot of bands, a, a lot of different people mixing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's volume is the biggest issue. Okay. Um, it's too think, quiet. You're saying? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a difference between making it sound big and it being loud. Okay. And I think that's has to do with good EQ use it, especially on outputs, especially on like main systems EQ tuning a room, tuning a PA. Uh, I know you have a lot to teach about that stuff too mm-hmm. yourself, but um, I think kind of keeping these big picture ideas of what is enjoyable to listen to. You know, obviously a lot of music should be really loud and that's fine. It can be loud, but uh, there's a sweet spot and there's always going to be a sweet spot. And too loud is not fun to listen to. Just hearing people just push the consoles immediately, just try to go so loud that their mixes end up sounding bad because, of course, the systems can only go to a certain volume. Mm -hmm. So if you're pushing the outputs of the console super, super hot, that's going to be made up for somewhere else in the system processing, either by limiting or by someone else turning you down or... You know, at a festival, you're going to have someone watching over the PA system that'll be turning you down if you're too loud. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's um, at, at some point, just pushing the console to, you know, into the red is just not going to be great. <laughs> so how mix. can so how can I make bigger sound without being louder? I know you said it has a lot to do with EQ. Um I wonder if you could point to maybe something I could be doing better with EQ or maybe something that you hear or see people kind of doing wrong and you're thinking, you know what, if that person would cut the mid-range out of their kick, then they wouldn't have to turn it up so loud and it would be bigger. Like, do you find yourself noticing any anything like that? I do tend to EQ my drums more than like most people do, I think. But okay. I find when I am cutting mids out of drums or cutting high mids out of guitars or whatever, I'm able to turn it up louder because it's not going to be getting in the way of the vocal or anything else in the mix. You know, in, in the studio, you, you can boost all kinds of EQs and, you know, really kind of like do crazy stuff. But in, in live sound, you it you have to kind of focus on subtractive EQ more than additive EQ. So I think it's more of managing the, the parts of the sound that don't sound good to you you know, some mid, you know, different mid-range frequencies, especially. And then you're able to kind of push everything up a little more in the mix. 
Okay. And and once you kind of have a good mix going, I think the overall looking at your main system EQ, especially in the high mids, is really important. Live speaker systems aren't really that hi-fi sounding. You know, they're, they're meant to be loud and brash and cover a big area. So especially in the high mids, there's they tend to be harsh. Take a look at that in your system EQ and are able to kind of manage that a little bit. You're able to kind of like push it a little more without kind of hurting hurting people's enjoyment of the music. Okay. So yeah, it sounds like a place for me to start would be to look at bal- look at managing the where things are fitting together in the frequency spectrum, especially in those areas where maybe um, sound systems are known for being harsh or maybe causing more fatigue or pain. And for you, that would be saying, uh, hey, you probably want to take a look at everything across the upper mid-range, and that might be something across the entire mix, or that might be things that are notorious for causing trouble in the upper mid-range, notably, I think you mentioned guitars. Yeah, guitars, exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, you know, this is why it's kind of difficult to say for sure because it's going to be different with every band every Mm -hmm. instrument every input it's going to be different and every venue is going to be different but speaker systems do have certain tendencies and certain types of rooms have certain tendencies Uh, you know mixing outdoors is going to be different than mixing in kind of a 600 capacity club you know if you're in a a rectangle room that has fits about 600 people they're, they're all going to have certain tendencies it's a matter of knowing what the situation is taking a big overall look at your system eq and your system processing in general and mm-hmm. and trying to build a good mix under that overall eq if that makes sense sure scott you do a lot of traveling and you work with a lot of sound engineers and colleagues and assistants is there one thing that you kind of wish everyone knew better or understood maybe like a word or a definition that you find yourself often having to explain to people or mistakes that someone is making that you have to fix so like one piece of information you just wish everyone knew you know what makes everything work is stage patching okay if if stages are patched correctly and done methodically, especially in your, if you're in like a festival or situation where there are multiple bands on one stage and you're moving equipment around. If you're if you're on top of your patching on stage, making sure all the inputs are hitting the consoles correctly, everything goes fine from there. Okay, I'm assuming you've you've experienced that not going well occasionally. Of course, many, many, many times. Okay. Um, <laughs> and. Is there, can you identify what the problem is there? Is it just people not reading the paperwork? Is it like uh, some piece of equipment that's numbered backwards? Or I don't know, people just not being disciplined or running out of time? I don't know. What's I think going it's people, on? There? It's people not being disciplined okay. and not being methodical. And I think if you follow a certain blueprint, if you have your input list in your stage plot and you go through and you label your boxes and you're methodical about what is going where, then your stage is going to get patched correctly. But some people just kind of throw it together, you know, and it just doesn't work very well that way because you'll end up having issues if you're not being methodical. Sure. So, um, All right. You heard it here first. Scott Adamson says, please do the patching right and everything will go better. And it does, you know, it makes a big difference. And, you know, I was uh, at this festival in Mexico City a couple of years ago just standing backstage with a friend of mine who was a uh, tour managing this band or vampire weekend, you know, big band. Sure. So I just like standing back there with, you know, with him and the band and they were just kind of like getting antsy and they were like five, then 10 minutes past stage time. And there was 
they end up going up 20 minutes late because they couldn't figure out one patching issue. It was kind of a disaster, you know, they yeah, couldn't even play their whole bad. set. You know, and there's 80,000 people there standing like waiting for them. And <laughs> one was one patching issue. Could They had such problems, problems solving it. That's a great example of like the things that sometimes you don't hear about that go wrong. And, and people still see problems a lot of times. But I think so many times from the outside, it seems like everything just goes perfectly. And you work on so many shows where... Behind the scenes, things are like just barely coming together at the last minute, but from the outside, you don't see that. And so I wanted to talk about that for a second, and I know this is going to be kind of a weird question, Scott, but I think sometimes when you are the person that's in the middle of that problem, it can feel terrible and like you're the only one in the world that has ever had this kind of like problem. And maybe you made some mistake and maybe you're the person that made that patching problem. And now you feel terrible because you made 80,000 people wait 20 minutes and now maybe you're going to lose your job. Yeah, it happens. So the reason I mentioned that is that I, I wondered if maybe you could share a story about when you've made a mistake that you felt like was really terrible or career ending or painful, um, just to kind of give people a sense that, you know, it happens to everyone and you learn from it and just like maybe what you did to recover from that. I don't know if you have anything, but I thought I'd check. The technical stuff, it's live music. Stuff happens. It's not its not a big deal if something goes wrong at a show most of the time. I mean, there are instances where Adele have a disastrous performance on the Grammys a couple of years ago when all of her audio stuff went wrong. And Tell me that. Can you remind me of what happened there? Because I I slightly remember it, but let's just can if you know the details, can you just sum up the story real quick? Well, she went on stage, and there were several audio problems, um, including I think some like backstage mics were. I you know I I don't want to speak too out of turn because I'm not sure exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. It was all kind of you're just watching story, this from the outside like everyone else. And then I well then I hear friends of mine were at the show and they told me the next day okay. <laughs> how how disastrous it was. There was there's a microphone that had fallen down and like was buzzing against one of the piano strings in her in-ear monitor mix. She was hearing uh, people talking backstage. All Ooh. kinds of bad things were happening and she sang terribly. Um it was I felt terrible for her cuz I could I could I could hear the buzzing in the broadcast TV mix. <laughs> I knew something was up and she looked so uncomfortable. I, I, it felt looks really stressful for her. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how terrible it must feel like to be on television yeah. and have those issues. I mean, I, I, I believe most of her team got fired the next, that day. Oh know. my God. Yeah. So even on the biggest shows, things can go wrong and I guess there are consequences. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine got the call the very next morning. was like, can you come <laughs> on tour with Adele right now? Oh wow. Um, okay. <laughs> and you know, it's cause things, but that is such an extreme case almost all the time if you have a technical issue it's going to be fine you do your best to fix it it's live music things happen this all goes back to more it's more about the the people that you're working with and the relationships that you have with them i the things that i regret most are just saying the wrong things to like a band manager or something or someone that i'm speaking to and i might say something out of place and then that's going to be something that would have them question about whether they should hire me or not again. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's I, I think those sort of things are more important. And I've definitely said things out of turn, maybe at times when I was frustrated or not being not having a good day, which happens and that's fine. If I was rude to somebody or you know, I have been rude to people and said stuff that I probably shouldn't have said, 
and that's going to be the stuff that I totally regret and, you know, would, would go back and take back. Sure. Interesting. So for you, it's really the relationship management part of the job that have been kind of regrets that have stuck with you and and points where you thought like, Oh, this could be bad for my career. (laughs) This thing that just happened, not because like a microphone didn't work for a few seconds or something. Absolutely. You know, and it's like, it's a manager or the tour manager or whatever. That's going to be the person that hires you for the next, next one, the next gig. If you're, if you're touring, you know, if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're working, if you're working for bands or whatever, you know, you know, even if you're at a, working at a, as a house engineer at a club, you know, saying something rude and saying, saying the wrong thing and someone gets offended and brings it up to your boss. <laughs> it's not good. You know, if a cable goes bad, you have a little technical problem. It's live music. Things happen. It's, sure. You get through, you get through that and, and keep working. It's fine. Scott, do you have any mixing techniques I can steal from you? I, I think I EQ drum drums more than most people do. You're talking about like deeper cuts, wider deeper cuts. cuts yeah, that kind exactly. Of stuff. And okay. I, I've had people look at my EQs without actually hearing them and just like look at the, you know, look at the screen and see the EQs and go, whoa, what, <laughs> what's wrong with you? What, what is, what are you doing? And then you hear it and it's like, oh, it sounds great. fits right in the mix. You know, it's, it. you always have to use your ear and do what sounds good and not looks good on the screen. But I, I tend to do that. And that works well for like a lot of pop music that I do and rock music too some rock bands, but mm-hmm. kind of hacking up some EQs on drums really can be effective. Nice. So what is I, your response to people when they see that on the screen? Do you, do you say to them, Hey, you gotta do what you gotta do. Exactly. Okay. You know, EQ it till it sounds good. <laughs> you know, so it, that we should come up with something that's sort of like the Scott Adamson preset. And it's just like, you put it across all your drums and it's a huge octave wide 12 DB cut at 500 Hertz or something like that. Something like that. But, you know, like those type of cuts are not uncommon in some of my mixes, some of the bands I do. So you need to do what sounds good, you know, and, and it's appropriate for that mix. But don't be afraid to, to do it if, it if that's what kind of gets those drums fitting in the right part of your mix. You I keep trying to think of things I could put on a T-shirt for you. And so far, my favorite one is if it doesn't sound good, EQ it till it does. Yeah, there you go. That's good. <laughs> Um, Scott, thank you so much for being on Sound Design Live with me today. Where is the best place for people to follow your work? Well, I do have a blog on my website, theproductionacademy.com slash blog. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as well as my free courses that we talked about earlier there. We didn't and, actually mention the free courses. I think oh, you mentioned true. a course that you have, but but tell people about the free course that you had, because I went through that one. It was fun. Cool. Uh, well, I have two free courses up at the moment. One is about audio tips to know for the stage. So really good for people playing music that don't have don't know much about audio. It, it's a five part course talks about frequency talks about audio connectors, uh, talks about monitors, IEMs, wedges, all, all kinds of stuff that just people need to know on stage while they're while they're playing music. And then the other one is how to use a mixer. And it's a nine part course that goes through all the different things, just basics of how a mixing console works for live sound. Sound design. I want to thank Daniel Mintzeris for music today's episode. If you want to find more of his music, you can do that over at mindlessinertia.com. Sound Design Live is supported by Bob and Ellis. 
You can start supporting Sound Design Live today for as little as $1 an episode over at patreon.com slash sounddesignlive.